Well, good evening, River City. Merry Christmas. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this Christmas Eve. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here. Uh, those of you who have been here with us the last couple of months, you'll know that we've been working our way on Sundays through the Gospel of John together. And tonight, in our short time together, uh, what we're going to see is we're going to actually go back to the first chapter of John and take a look at, at John's version of the Christmas story. And just like the rest of John's gospel, uh, it's pretty unique. It's very different than all of the other Christmas stories you read about, maybe Matthew or Luke. Uh, unlike the one we just saw as well, in John's gospel, there's no Mary, there's no Joseph, there's no shepherds, there's no inn, there's no animals, there's no stable, there, there's not even a baby, right, in John's version of the Christmas story. And some of you are like, I don't think, Brandon, I don't think you understand that's not the Christmas story, right? See, but the reality is I want to show you tonight is that John's version of the Christmas story is not just, it's not a different story, it's just a different lens. And see, instead of zooming into the micro, John zooms out to the macro, and within just a few short verses, he presents us with a version of the Christmas story that showcases the cosmically huge scope and the history-altering significance of what really happened that night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It's a, it was a version of the Christmas story that was meant to wake people up from a kind of head-level, lifeless familiarity with Jesus and to transform their view of Jesus into a one that was a, characterized by a heart that was captivated by who he was and all that he came to do. And so I can't wait to show that to you this morning, or this evening. It's not morning, right? Uh, with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into God's Word together. God, thanks so much uh, for the chance again to gather this Christmas Eve, to point ourselves to you and to who you are and all that you've done. And, and so God, tonight as we come again to remember a story through a different lens, God, we pray that you, uh, by your spirit, might be gracious to give us new eyes to see something about the Christmas story this year that we need to hear from you. And we pray, Jesus, that the good news of your coming to earth might be, again, good news to our hearts tonight. So uh, we need you for that. I can't make that happen. And so, God, we pray uh, for our good and for your glory. You might do it again tonight, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 1, uh, just a couple of verses tonight. It begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse 14, John goes on, says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, I included verses 1 through 3 as well as verse 18 for a little bit of context, but the reality is that John's Christmas story is actually just one verse long. Verse 14, that's, that's, the, that's John's whole version of what happened at Christmas. What I want to do in our short time together is show you how in that one verse, not only do we learn what Christmas is all about, 
But we actually get a glimpse and what we see is that the rea- how that reality is meant to transform our lives each and every day of the year. And so let's just begin with that question. What, what is Christmas all about, right? At the heart of John's Christmas story is this phrase at the beginning of verse 14, right? That the word became flesh. Three little words that are jam-packed with such incredible meaning and significance that countless books have been written about those three words alone. The big theological word that commentators use to sum up what those three words communicate is the word incarnation. And some of you are thinking, that actually doesn't help me at all understand what those three words are talking about, right? Well, let me just see if I can simplify it a little, little bit more, right? You've had chili con carne before, right? That's chili with meat, right? The incarnation is like God with meat, right? That, that's what it is, right? Throughout, throughout, you see, throughout the Bible, we read that God's spirit, which means that he doesn't have a body like you and I do. But the message of, first, of John chapter 1, verse 14, is that in Jesus, the, person, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely holy creator God, himself enters into our world by putting on flesh and becoming a man. He doesn't just appear to be human, John says. John makes clear that he became human. And for many of us, that's kind of old news, right? Like, that, of course, yes, duh, that's what Christmas is about, right? God became a man, right? We understand that, we get that. But, but to the original readers of John's gospel, those words would have been earth-shattering, right? They would have caused everyone who heard them, whether they were Jew or Gentile, anyone who heard them would have done a massive double-take. <coughs> you see, in Greek philosophy, the word or the logos... It was a term that referred to kind of this impersonal force behind the, that brought the unity and order to the universe, right? The Greeks, they looked at the order and, the, and, they, looked at the, and they looked at nature and they saw the balance and harmony and order that was there and they said, there's got to be something behind that. There's got to be something behind why all that makes sense, why it all works the way it does. There's got to be some cosmic principle, some reason why everything is the way it is. <coughs> And for all their certainty about what the Logos might be, the one thing that they were absolutely certain of is that the Logos could not be something physical. It, was never, it wouldn't be something tangible. You see, for the Greeks, the, the physical was always bad. It was always a limiting factor. The goal was always to be freed from the physical to be able to live in the metaphysical. And so John's assertion that the Logos, the the divine logic behind all that is, was not just some invisible force, but was in fact a person. That would have stunned the Greeks. The same is true for the Jews, but for a different reason. You see, for the Jews, God's word was synonymous with the exercise of his sovereign power and will and authority. In Genesis 1, creation begins with God simply speaking the universe into existence. In Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God's word bringing about not just creation, but judgment and destruction and healing and revelation and redemption and salvation. And so again, God's word is synonymous with the exercise of his sovereign power and will and authority. And the idea that any human might take on the embodiment of God's sovereign will and authority, that was at the very heart of what blasphemy was. And so that wasn't an option. And the Jews would never have even considered for a moment that, a so- that the sovereign God of the universe might become a human. And yet that's exactly what John is telling us. You see, this is the message of Christmas. right? It's not just that an important baby was born. 
but that in Jesus, the eternal, divine, creator God himself, the logos of the universe, took on flesh, became a human, one people could see and hear and touch, someone people could know. See, and that leads us to what I want to spend the last little bit of our time on tonight. You see, the doctrine of the incarnation is not just a fact that we should know about. It's a reality that has infinitely deep and far-reaching implications for our everyday lives. What I want to do is just highlight just a couple of those. We, we, I could preach a whole series of sermons on the implications of that, that one thing. But I just want to highlight a few things for you this morning that we see in John chapter 1. <coughs> the first is simply this. Because of the incarnation, you and I can know the truth. You see, notice at the end of verse 14, it says it this way, The Word who became flesh, He came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Over the past few weeks in our study of John, we've been looking at chapters 8 and 9, and we've seen how Jesus refers to Himself as the light of the world. We've talked about how the idea that light is the thing that enables you to see. Without light, you can't ever truly see anything. You can kind of feel around in the darkness. You can kind of gain some kind of vague knowledge about your surroundings, but you can't ever have true knowledge of it. <clears throat> Not until you turn the lights on. See, we live in a world that says that truth is what you make it. Right, that it's whatever you decide it to be. Your truth can be different than someone else's. And that's supposed to be freeing and liberating. And yet the reality is, is that it doesn't make us more free. It just makes us more confused. And as the light of the world, Jesus shines in the midst of the darkness in our world's self-made truths, and he reveals the actual truth. And the incarnation is the invitation that we might see his revelation of the truth as the truth. He's come so that we might know what is true. Missionary theologian Leslie Newigan puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the true light that shines on every human being. There's no other light that enables us to see things as they really are. And things really are as they are shown to be in the light of Jesus because he is the one through whom they all came to be. See, what John makes clear is that Jesus is not just a wise prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He's not a spiritual guru. He's the divine author of the universe. And as the one who made everything, he has a unique perspective to be able to offer the truth about all things. Namely, what we see in John is that Jesus reveals the truth about God. Right? As, as God, Jesus perfectly reveals the truth about who God is and what he's like. The author of Hebrew puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 3, says that the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. See, Jesus is God's ultimate self-disclosure. See, the good news of the incarnation is not just that you can know the truth, but that God wants you to know it. He wants you to know the truth about who he is. And we see that in Jesus. That's why at River City, we're always getting back to the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus displays and he proves what God is like. He shows us the truth about him. And if you want to know the truth about God, then you have to look at Jesus. And when you do, what you see is the truth. See, that brings us to the second implication of the incarnation I want to show you tonight. See, because of the incarnation, we can know that God wants to be near to us. Verse 14 goes on to say this, that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. I always loved how Eugene Peterson paraphrased it in his version of the message. He says it this way, that the word became flesh and blood 
and moved into our neighborhoods. You see, from the very beginning of creation, God's desire has been to dwell with his people. God creates humanity for relationship with one another and with him. See, and the incarnation is the proof that there is nothing that will keep God from dwelling with his people. Some of you are here tonight and you really need that reminder. The way you tend to think about God is kind of like a disinterested father who kind of does the bare minimum and checks the boxes of someone who's just kind of like around and keeps an eye on what's going on but doesn't actually have a longing for relationship or nearness to you. But the good news of the incarnation is that God longs to be near to you. He wants to dwell with you. He is not content to be a far off and distant, uninvolved deity. He wants to have a relationship with you. One that's characterizes, as verse 18 says, that's characterized by the nearness and closeness that, of the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. That's what he wants with you. Verse 2 of Hark the Herald Angels Sing says it this way. We sang this earlier. It says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. You see, the incarnation was not duty and obligation for God. It was a result of a God who longs to be near to his people. Some of you need that reminder tonight. He longs to be near to you. And so because of the incarnation, we can know the truth about God, and we can know that he wants to be near to us. But third, because of the incarnation, we can know that God understands us perfectly. See, the incarnation proves that God's deepest heart for us is not one of anger and judgment and disappointment, but it's one of compassion and sympathy and love. He's not looking down on our weaknesses and our doubts and our fears and our complacency with contempt. He's looking down with compassion because he knows what it's like. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read that, that we have a high priest who is, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. See, in the midst of all the temptation and fear and loneliness and sadness and hurt that you and I all walk through in life, the incarnation is this reminder that Jesus knows it deeply. He understands what all of that feels like. One of my favorite Christmas hymns, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, the third verse puts it this way. It says that he's come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our redeemer, shepherd, friend. See, some of you are here tonight and you need the reminder that the Lord of creation stepped down into his own creation and that he knows deeply what it's like to walk through it and to be human. We're not worshiping a God who doesn't understand what we're going through. Instead, he knows it perfectly and he longs to meet you in the midst of all of the things that are difficult and hard and painful. And he wants to meet you in that in the kind of shepherding and redeeming way that only someone, only a friend who is truly human can offer you. You see, the incarnation, it reminds us that we can know the truth. It reminds us that God wants to be near. It reminds us that he knows what it's like to be human. And fourth, because of the incarnation, we can know that seeing and pursuing God's glory, it leads to life and not death. 
See, you and I, we live in a world that says the way to life is to pursue your own glory. Do whatever brings you satisfaction, whatever brings you fulfillment, whatever brings you life. Do whatever it feels that is right to you. That's the way to life. And the idea that God might call us to be about Him and His glory, that feels like death to us. You see, in the pursuit of God's glory, that would have felt like death to people in the Old Testament as well. One of the things you see throughout the Old Testament is that it's painfully clear that God's glory, His transcendent majesty and worth is so categorically superior to ours that even glimpsing it would destroy people. In Exodus, Moses, he, he begs God to just give him a glimpse of His glory and God tells him no. If you see it, you'll die. And yet in the incarnation, all of that changes. See, John says in the middle of verse 14 that we beheld his glory. And it doesn't say that he died. It says we beheld his glory. In fact, the very opposite of death happens. All those who saw Jesus for who he really was. What you see in John is that they, they started to truly live. Over and over and over in John's gospel, what we see is that people receiving eternal life as they see and believe the truth about Jesus. Why? Why is that flipped? See, because the incarnation is not just about God revealing the truth about himself to us. It's about God coming to earth to pay the price that keeps us from being able to experience his glory fully. To pay the price for our sin. You see, the good news of Christmas and the incarnation is good news because there's bad news. See, the bad news of the Bible is that we are dead in sin, that we are rebellious enemies of God. And our sin separates us from Him, and we are rightly under His just wrath for, his, for it. And the good news is that when Jesus comes as the incarnate Word of God, He doesn't come to crush us with the truth about God. He instead, we see in verse 14, comes full of grace. See, we desperately needed a Savior, and in the incarnation, the one who could save us came. It's the best news the world had ever heard. See, the message of Christmas is not behave. God's watching you. Don't get on his bad side. See, the message of Christmas, the invitation at Christmas is to behold. Behold the incarnate word of God, the one who has come to pay the penalty for your sin. The divine creator who could pay the eternal penalty and the fully human son of God who could do it on your behalf. He's come. And to behold him for all he's done. And what happens is when those truths sink deeply into your heart, something else changes. There's another implication of the incarnation. See, what happens is when, when the reality of Jesus' incarnation and all it does impact, it sinks deeply into your heart, what happens is that you realize that you have been sent out into the world to live as the incarnation, the embodiment of Jesus, so that your family and friends and neighbors and co-workers might come to know as well the word made flesh for you. You see, Jesus tells us later in the book of John, he says to his disciples, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. See, remembering God on mission to us 
remembering the incarnation. That's what fuels our longing for others to know him as well. And just like Jesus showed up, showed us, you can't do that from a distance. See, love demands incarnation. You have to dwell with people, to live amongst them, to share life with them so that they might know and be able to point to the light of life that he offers to them. You see, the incarnation is not just a truth we remember at Christmas and forget in January. It's a truth that shapes each and every day of our lives. And for you, maybe there was something here tonight that you needed to remember this year about the incarnation. Maybe you're here tonight and what you needed to be reminded of is that in Jesus, the incarnation is that he reveals the truth about God. God wants you to know the truth about who he is. He is not hiding from you. He's come in the person of Jesus so that you might know him. And so keep asking him to show himself to you. Others of you are here and you need the reminder that the incarnation proves that God longs to be near to you. That he's not far off and distant, but he is deeply present in the midst of your life. Maybe you're here and you need to the reminder that he understands and sympathizes with you, that he's not one who doesn't understand what it's like to walk through the things you've walked through, but in all of the difficulties, he knows exactly what it is. And he wants to empower you with his grace to meet those things head on. Maybe for some of you, you need the reminder that seeing his glory, it leads to life. That when we live for his glory, when we pursue his glory, it brings about the life you are after. And it brings that about because Jesus came full, not just of truth, but of grace for you. And maybe some of you are here and you need the reminder that the incarnation, it sends you out on mission as well. It's not just something that is for you. It's something God does through you as you seek to be sent just as Jesus was. Let's pray. God, we're so glad tonight to get to come and remember your incarnation, to remember that the great God of the universe, who is all-powerful and sovereign, like the video said the time, made himself small. And you did that, Jesus, so that we might know you, that we might know the truth about you, that we might know your grace, that we might know your comfort and compassion, that we might know your mercy and your goodness and so that we might be sent on mission as you were sent on mission to us. And so we pray, God, might the good news of the incarnation fill us with life and joy this Christmas, and might it send us out into the world as your people sent to embody you, Jesus, we pray. Amen.